Welcome to the Influence Factory podcast. This program is dedicated to support professionals who have a desire to develop their digital business influence so they can navigate through a fast-paced, constantly growing digital world. We invite newcomers as well as our family of business influencers to a place to play, share ideas, questions, tips, and guidance with other thought leaders around the globe. Sit back and enjoy our program with our host, Dean Delisle, as he interviews guests. News and commentary is provided by Kate Hassett and Jackson Delisle. Power Move lessons are provided by the Influencer Marketing Department at Social Jack. And production, editing, and distribution is provided by the Social Jack production team. All right, I want to welcome everybody to a, another episode of the Influence Factory. And uh, we have a special guest uh, joining us today, Brian Jensen. He is... Uh, or no, Brian Jenkins. So sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> it's funny how the world shows up in different ways on different platforms. Um, and previously, a CNN uh, reporter, and we're going to get into that when we do his interview. And then now he's in the blockchain space. So those of you that are on with us live, we're going to get to actually see uh, him, uh, you know, talk about the transformation and, and really shifting uh, industries in a big way. Um, but before we do that, Kate, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. If people want to join us on social or on the live stream in case they're on Zoom, where would they go? Yeah, absolutely. Make sure you're following us on social regardless outside of this Influence Factory. We post a lot of um, news articles like we cover on the show, industry tips, videos, things like that. So we're on Facebook, um, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Social Jack, and then on Twitter at Get Social Jack. And if you are on Facebook, make sure you access our Business Influencer Alliance Facebook group. It's a cultivated community of people that want to share tips and tricks. And then, of course, we stream this program weekly live within the group, as well as unique programming and live streams. So just uh, send us a request and we'll let you get in there. And Emily is also live tweeting this program today on Twitter using the hashtag Influence Factory. So if there's anything you want to see, if you want to chime in the conversation, you can also access us that way. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Kate. And uh, those of you that want to join us or download the uh, segments or the entire program of the Influence Factory podcast, uh, you can found, find us on uh, Stitcher, Spreaker, um, Google Play, iTunes, uh, Spotify, and YouTube, and also the Social Jack platform, which has the complete show notes and all the links and any attachments and materials that we might cover during the program. So uh, we always encourage you to log in and get those uh, updates and those tools as we continue to build that library. There's over a thousand downloadable pieces in the Social Jack library now. So Oh. Remember these? The, yeah, these. I know, isn't it crazy? These are. Uh, <laughs> I think I've been saying over three hundred for a really long time. And yeah, that, I know we hit a thousand, and that's what Joe was like. We got to change servers, but these are worksheets, and these are videos, and these are infographics, and it's news, and it's all kinds of things to help you build your digital influence. Doesn't that sound cool, Brian? Yes, it does, sir. Yeah, why would anybody not do that? So, sure. <laughs> all right. So uh, we're going to move into our news segment. So this is the uh, Social Jack Influencer News. So the top story today is uh, LinkedIn has begun to roll out its own version, and they call it Reactions for Posts. Now, I'm laughing about this because when we were talking with Brian a little earlier, uh, you know, it was it was 
you know, funny that, you know, in Facebook, they came out with the fact that you could be angry, you could be laughing, you could be sad. Um, you could just give it the old thumbs up that you'd just plain old like. And, uh, you know, we always laugh of how the platforms, when they see something take off, they mm -hmm. start to copy off of one another. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the funny thing about this is their, um, emotions are a little bit different, but, uh, Kate, you, you know, you guys live in social media in your department there. What do you think about this? I love it. I love it because, you know, obviously it's not weird, like you said, to see other platforms copy each other when things take off. You know, Facebook obviously is one of the first to do everything. Um, so LinkedIn, you know, copied them, copied them right with the live stream. Instagram jumped on the live stream. Snapchat came out and other people decided to add stories. So, you know, it's not it's not um, uncommon to see. But what LinkedIn, I think, does better than anybody, anybody else is they really cater it towards their platform. So like Instagram adopted IGTV and it really didn't go anywhere because they didn't really cater it for Instagram, whereas LinkedIn has that down. They understand who's on their platform and they've really made it work for them. So whereas we see like the sad button on, on Facebook and the angry button on Facebook, those aren't the, those aren't the reactions we're seeing on LinkedIn. We're seeing likes, we're seeing celebrate, we're seeing the love button, which I know their was that people were asking specifically for a love button. And that is my favorite reaction, hands down. So I can't wait to use it. But also LinkedIn rolled out an insightful button that looks like a um, light bulb. And then a curious button, a little purple face that's like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So I love that they catered the reaction specifically for their platform because yes, you can like and you can celebrate when somebody's posting, like Brian goes and posts that he was on Influence Factory, we can hit the celebrate button and we can hit the love button. But when somebody shares an article and it makes you think, you can hit that curious. And I think that that's like a reaction that really fits in on LinkedIn. So I love that they did it that way. Yeah. So Brian, as an avid uh, user, you know, you talked about early on about how you, uh, and we'll talk about this a little more in your interview, um, about how you jumped onto uh, LinkedIn with a whole group of people. And so with that, what do you think about this, these reactions that are just not a plain old like anymore? So often I want to use an emotion emoji <laughs> on LinkedIn and I find myself limited. I'm looking for those hearts and, and faces. I also was turned on to an app called Giffage yep. that provides an endless variety of GIFs and little clips and photos that you can find for any occasion. I think many people will take some time to learn to use the emojis on LinkedIn because it tends to be a serious news uh, and professional source of information. <clears throat> but over time, I think uh, you'll see an increasing <clears throat> amount of that. So I welcome it. I'm going to try to use it carefully and not get carried away on LinkedIn <laughs> or the way I sometimes do on, on Facebook. Um, I'd also like to see more emojis on Instagram, if possible. Yeah. I feel limited there, too, because I can only hit the little heart button to like something. Um, and I get the impression that many people do not really read the comments on Instagram. Right. Uh, Facebook people tend to look at, at the comments on their comments, etc. But, yeah, I look forward to using the emojis on LinkedIn. 
Yeah. And I'll catch myself, especially on uh, Facebook, when I'm looking at it, I will catch myself looking to go, oh, I got a couple of loves or I got somebody that's sad, you know, and I'm like, who's sad? <laughs> you know, what did <laughs> right. I say? What did I say that yeah. was sad? <laughs> well, you also have to keep in mind that people do it with their thumbs. So sometimes that little flick, sometimes I'll try to hit love and I get the wow button and I'm like, mm, that's still kind of applies. I'll leave it. I yes. know there was some there was something and I said, Holly, why are you angry? She goes, Oh no, no, that's not toward you. And I go, Well, it felt like it was. You know, it was just funny because <laughs> we're like <laughs> Stop yelling. <laughs> I know everything, yeah. every, everything's taken in the moment. Um yeah. well if anyone from LinkedIn is listening, I hope that the thing they roll out next is the reactions to other people's comments. Because I would like to leave the curious or the love on other people's comments on a feed. So hopefully they roll that one out next because Facebook does that currently and I like to because that's another great way to join in the conversation and engage other people. Now, now, Kate, you know that I'm a gifaholic and I'm an emojiaholic, so uh, especially in texting. So, uh, to Brian's point, um, what I was uh, interested about is um, the fact that we have, um, you know, used uh, emojis, especially to express different emotions, right? Emoji, emojis, emotions. So, um, do you think that's going to start? being less and less and going away? Because I've even used that, um, you know, on LinkedIn. But what do you think? you think these buttons are going to start reducing uh, us seeing more and more of these emojis? No, I think people love emojis um, regardless. I'm seeing a lot of people putting them in their headlines now, in their summary, in their bios, things like that. I know I have them in my headline um, instead of the regular just separator. I have my separators, you know, as an emoji. So I think that we're going to see it happen more often. And I think that now people are really in a groove of using LinkedIn and how they can use it socially and professionally and make those two brands work together instead of opposing. I think we're just going to see more um, fun, you know, things like this happening. I'm even seeing more gifts recently, which when the gifts first rolled out, I think everybody was kind of scared to use them. And now I see them a lot more. So those are my favorite. I'm with Brian. I love gifts. I, I get, well, you know me on Twitter, I gif everything. So it's like, I just love, and, and, and I like it because to me, it's like, um, it's like an open coloring book. I'm always surprised because they're constantly uploading new ones. So I like the fact that when you search it, boom, it pops up and it's like, oh, I'll use that one. And then, you know, <laughs> so, but uh, those are fun. So the right. gift of gifts. Yeah, right. Oh, I love it. <laughs> It keeps on gifting. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a flash class. Yeah, right. Exactly. All right. With that being said, that concludes our uh, news segment for today. So, um, and then uh, we'll be uh, we'll be jumping into our interview segment next. So, we want to thank everybody for joining the uh, news portion of the program. And again, if you want to uh, download these independently, you can go to the YouTube channel. You can also go to podcast channels. And they will have the new segments and I'll also have the interviews. So we want to thank everybody for whatever segment that you love. And we always want feedback. So if there's news that you want us to cover, just go into the Business Influencer Alliance Facebook group or on our social media, hashtag Influence Factory, and tell us what you want. And then we'll make sure we serve it up. Absolutely. All right. With that being said, uh, Kate, I will see you on the other side. And then uh, those of you that are live with us, please stay on. And I'm going to introduce our guest for this next segment. Smile, Brian. You're going to be introduced. <laughs> 
All right. I'd like to introduce my uh, good friend, uh, Brian Jenkins, and uh, he's the Director of Communications for Business Block, a firm that advises corporate executives and leaders of organizations on financial and information technologies. Uh, he's been in finance for over a decade now, and uh, uh, first as a personal financial advisor and as an investment banker. Uh, and in the previous decade, he traveled the country producing informational videos for corporations, foundations, and government agencies. And for 16 years, from 82 to 98, Brian was a correspondent and anchor for CNN based in LA, then Tokyo, and finally New York. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dean. Glad to be with you. Yeah. And I, you know what? It's funny. You know, I, every time we get together, it's always like, you have so many stories. I, I almost don't know sometimes uh, where to where to ask or talk about. But I'm going to bring up a couple of fun facts that that I think that are cool because some of these, you know, on this program we talk about how people um, progress with their lives and then that turns into careers. And 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 you were, uh, you know, when you started at CNN, you were 24. And you were the youngest full-time correspondent to ever serve the network. And the network was still new at that point. So what was mm -hmm. that like? Well, many of us were plucked out of smaller markets around the country. Ted Turner, in creating CNN in 1980, when it debuted, tore apart the old career development system. I likened television news to professional baseball, where you had single A teams, double A, triple A. Triple A teams in television news were the local stations in big markets like Chicago, New York, LA, and then the networks were the major leagues. Well, Ted created something completely different, and he staffed it with people who were veterans of the other networks, but also a lot of young people for, from around the country. And the gentleman in charge of hiring correspondents was from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, had been a news director in Oklahoma City at one point, and he recruited a lot of young people from Oklahoma, including me. I was the number two anchor at the number one station in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the ABC station. My Saturday evening newscast that I anchored came on after Fantasy Island, and we had the number one rated newscast in the entire market uh, on Saturday evenings. So at a very young age, I found myself to be a celebrity in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I was a big fish in a medium-sized pond and was asked if I'd be interested in a position with CNN in L.A. At the time, it was still considered chicken noodle news or cup of noodle news, add hot water and stir. Uh, within the industry, people felt that it may not last but I thought, hey, it's L.A. I saw myself going east first instead of west, but <laughs> I thought this could be a stepping stone to um, a big three station in Los Angeles at the end of uh, a contract. Uh, big three, I mean, ABC, CBS, NBC. So they flew me out to Hollywood. I went to the bureau. They offered me a job on the spot. I accepted really didn't even negotiate the salary. Three weeks later, I'm living in Hollywood Hills. So wow. for a kid from Iowa, it was exciting to be going to California. I grew up wanting to be a beach boy and a surfer. Yeah, and the, uh, was, here was, was my hot, chance. That was, hot at the, that was hot at the time, that music. That's what I was trying to think. What were, what were the top tunes during that time, you know? Well, in the early 80s, gosh, I remember driving into Hollywood to the sounds of uh, Africa by Toto. Right. And... Um, 
so, but when I was very young, the Beach Boys were hot and the Beatles, of course. But uh, so I, I, it was fun to, to be in LA and to see all the places that I had seen in TV shows and, and movies. Um, but um, so it was an, an interesting time. CNN was still not well known. Many people in Southern California would say, CNN, is that that Christian broadcasting? And I'd say, no, no, it's Ted Turner. Oh, yeah, Ted Turner. We know him, the mouth of the South. Yeah, right. Well, uh, slowly but surely, CNN gained acceptance. And I went to Tokyo in 1986. I had asked for a position there in 1984. And then two years later, they said, we need you there now. So I, I went over, had a tremendous run of news in L.A. and then in the Far East, and CNN gained more and more recognition. And because CNN was shown on Armed Forces TV in the Far East, particularly oh, Japan and Korea, okay. yeah, so we, we had more exposure in uh, South Korea than the other American networks. And so I was able to get interviews with political figures that the other networks couldn't because they knew CNN. And even though I was quite a bit younger than most of the other network correspondents, I had that kind of access. One story I love to tell, I heard that an ABC crew was out in Seoul one day and someone came up and said, uh, ABC, what's that? And they said, American Broadcasting Company. And they said, oh, CNN. So... <laughs> American was yeah. CNN to those people. So I, I was able to get interviews with uh, political dissident leaders that the other networks couldn't get. And so it, it gave me an advantage. They had a huge advantage in the number of camera crews and producers and staff that they had there, especially during the summer of rioting in 1987. But uh, I managed to, with my two camera crews and no producers, uh, keep pace and exceed them in some ways, which brought me attention from the other networks at that point. But um, yeah, so as far as I know, uh, I am still the youngest correspondent CNN has ever hired full-time. Wow. Wow. And, um, you know, one thing, it's uh, interesting. I remember I had taken, I had left Merrill Lynch in the early 80s, and I want to say it was maybe the mid eighties when, uh, when all of a sudden I got to New York and my, uh, I was staying with my buddy in uh, Jersey and mm. all of a sudden I look on his TV and he's got, um, he's got the, uh, uh, sort of the, uh, uh, this, the headline news thing on. And I go, mm -hmm. what is this? These are just like snippets of stories. And I go, this is brilliant. Cause I have a short attention span and I like, everything. <laughs> you know, I always say I, I read Matt, you know, I love social media. Cause when I was growing up, I didn't read books. I read magazine articles. So, right. so to me, this was like the, the snippet. And then if I decided I wanted more, I could flip to the, you know, this was pre-internet, if you will, for the news. Sure. So mm -hmm. then I'm like, you know, wow, you know, I can, uh, I can really uh, dig into whatever I want at this point. And one of my colleagues in Tulsa, the ABC station, was one of the first to jump to CNN. It was called CNN 2 originally, then it became Headline News. And uh, she, she jumped a year before I went to L.A., uh, again, they were recruiting a lot of young people, and some of those folks are still active in the business, and some of my colleagues at CNN are still there, not many, but uh, some are. But 
once the the internet came around, people were able to get their news from the internet. And now with smartphones, people get news alerts. So you'll notice that uh, CNN headline news, they, they changed the name to um, H, HLN. Right. And oh, I, yeah. think they've, I think recently they changed it back. But I believe from three o'clock central in the afternoon on, they show repeat episode, episodes of forensic files. And my wife is sort of hooked on that. And I get easily hooked with the opening 10 seconds of each show. But there's less and less news on headline news, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's interesting. And so um, just real quick, and then, then mm-hmm. we're going to transition here. But you covered some of the most amazing news stories of our time, you know, because whenever I go through this with you, it's like time travel because it takes <laughs> back to those moments. I mean, you've covered earthquakes, the Gulf War, uh, hurricanes, uh, the World Trade Center, uh, the standoff in, um, in, you know, down in, down in Texas, in Waco. And so, so what was that like? Um, I mean, is there anything that stands out, you know, one over the other that you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, because they were all significant history points, you know? Yes, I I was tremendously lucky. I had a tremendous 16-year run with CNN. I covered many of the most historic events of the uh, 80s and 90s. Name a topic, I probably covered it. I figure I filed at least 5,000 reports over my 16 years with CNN, some on the same topic, and I would cover uh, criminal trials uh, for a lengthy period of time or some other stories. I would have to say my top experience was reporting live from Kuwait City hours before the Allied forces actually rolled into the city. We arrived with a crew of 30 people um, in the CNN group at 11.30 in the evening. The city was blacked out. The Iraqis had knocked out the power stations before they left. So it was very eerie. You had these white apartment high-rises, sort of ghostly in the night. There was an orange glow on one horizon. It turned out those were the oil field fires. We didn't know that. I thought there was some kind of skirmish or battle going on, but it was the oil field fires. And so we arrived at 1130 at night. We later called ourselves the Dirty 30 because we weren't able to take showers for two weeks. We didn't have any hot water um, because the Iraqis, again, had knocked out the power. Um, but, uh, so we got there at 1130 at night, we drove around. I remember seeing somebody had spray painted on concrete guardrails along the expressway, um, free Kuwait, Bush did it. I love CNN. So we knew they had been watching us for seven months as they were occupied by these brutal Iraqis. And, um, so we set up. Um, and as our engineers set up our huge satellite dish in those days, it was quite big and they had to, to pack it in pieces and suitcases and then pull it out and put it all together. While they were doing that, I used a satellite foam with a small metal umbrella to make our first audio report. So I went live at 1.30 in the morning. Uh, I was the first correspondent for CNN reporting from the city and the second reporter in the world to go live from Kuwait City. Wow. and then. At dawn, the caravan of Allied forces led by Kuwaitis, then Saudis, and then others from the Persian Gulf rolled in a few American special forces with them. But the Americans tried to keep a low profile and let the um, 
Persian Gulf states get the bulk of the credit. And so they rolled in and people came out of their homes to celebrate and dance around us. And the women were ululating. I won't even attempt to replicate <laughs> that, but uh, I have a, a photo of myself with my helmet on and, and I'd taken out my contact lenses. So I had these big tortoise shell eyeglass frames that were stylish in those days. <laughs> and uh, um, people are dancing around me. So I, I filed our first report out of uh, Kuwait City uh, that day. So I would have to say that's big. Covering Tiananmen Square in, two years before that was, was a big event. Um, and I did cover all manner of disasters, the San Francisco earthquake, Hurricane Andrew in Florida. I covered the bombing of the World Trade Center. I was the first reporter to go national with that from a payphone across the street. From That's the what World I was going to ask. You were, yeah, you were on the ground in the dust, right? And, and... Yes. Uh, so this is not to be confused with 9-11. This was the bombing of the underground garage underground, at the right. Trade Center in 1993. I was actually at federal court in lower Manhattan waiting for a ruling in a case by a group of gay and lesbian um, Irish folks who wanted to march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and ultimately the court approved that. But as we were waiting, our pagers went off. We didn't have cell phones in right. 1993. So I called in to our desk, and they said, hey, there's been an explosion underneath the World Trade Center. And I thought, oh, it's probably another old gas pipe in New York that's right. blown up. So I walked over there. It was only a few blocks over. And as I came into view, I looked up and I saw black smoke coming out a few windows uh, in the upper north tower. And people were streaming out of the doors at ground level. And I thought, this is not a steam pipe explosion or a, a gas pipe explosion. And there was an open uh, phone pay phone across the street. I dialed into Atlanta. They patched me into the control room and I went live immediately. I later learned that because most of the locals, nearly all the local stations in New York had their transmission tower on the top of one of the trade center buildings and power was knocked out, they all lost power. So all the local stations went dark. My wife was scheduled to anchor on New York One, the all news cable channel that evening she went uh, onto the anchor desk at 4 p.m and i don't believe she was allowed to leave until 1 15 a.m so nine hours straight without a potty break anchoring the wow. coverage and because new york one was the only local station on the air that day everybody was watching new york one and she got a lot of job offers after that and some major rewards. Um, but I was on the ground covering it for CNN. So I was the first reporter nationally to, to let the world know that uh, something had blown up under the trade center. Wow. That is, uh, that has got to be crazy now. Now, um, and your, your wife is still in the news media on WGN uh, in Chicago, right? Yes, she is. She's a morning reporter Tuesdays through Fridays. So she's out covering all manner of incidents. She covers a lot of shootings in Chicago, of course, uh, court cases, whatever's the top story of the day. She's usually there, bad weather, um, but also some, Fun stories, including um, opening day of the baseball season, that sort of thing. Right. But yeah, she's she's still going strong. 
and she's very active on social media. She was named social media person of the year in Chicago in 2013. She hates for me to mention that because she thinks there are other people who are more influential and she's not the only one to use social media, but she was really one of the first people nationally to embrace Twitter. She was having Twitter conversations with Shaquille O'Neal and uh, Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore early on and was being invited to Twitter parties. And because she was the news, she was invited to speak on panels in Chicago and Las Vegas and really embraced that at a time when a lot of TV reporters were resistant. And many still are resistant to using social media. They feel they're not compensated for the time they put into that. She embraced it and it She's built a, a huge following. She has nearly half a million followers on Facebook, for instance. Right. And she uses right. Facebook Live frequently prior to going on the air with her live reports on WGN. That's wild. Now, you're in, um, you're in a different space. You're no longer mm-hmm. reporting, but you, uh, I know you do a lot of speaking and, and mm-hmm. things like that. And you've uh, transitioned to uh, the world of blockchain which, yes. uh, you know, I've been in technology my whole life and I have a lot of friends like you in blockchain because we run at the, con- we run into each other at the conference. Yes. You know, I, I speak on the, the social media part about it, but, um, and I still find it fascinating. <clears throat> and, and for those listeners that don't understand blockchain and then we'll get into your story, just give us a snapshot definition. Like what the heck is blockchain? I find it useful to use analogies and, yep. and metaphors. So I tell people, think of a paper ledger book. Think of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol <laughs> with his quill pen scratching entries into a paper ledger book. That was the technology of the time. Later, someone invented the typewriter. Uh, then we later had electronic record keeping. Blockchain is the next stage in the evolution of record keeping and information. So I say to people, think of a block as a page in in a ledger book. But everybody participating in a certain group, they call it an ecosystem, can see what's going on the page. They can see what's going digitally. So you have all these computers participating, whether it's a public blockchain or a private blockchain. All the computers see what's going on to the ledger page in real time. Once that page is full, it is sealed with a digital code. And again, it's not a paper page. It it exists in cyberspace. But once that page is sealed, that's called a block. Then you start a new page, and that is sealed when it's full, and that's a block, and that creates the blockchain. So you have to picture in your mind the blocks in a chain. You can't physically see it. Right. But there are illustrations that, that show it that way. So that's that's what I say. So the, the advantages of blockchain are that everybody can see what's going on at the same time. Once the page or block is sealed, it cannot be messed with. Nobody can theoretically break into it and change the information. So it's immutable. So the blockchain can provide a single source of truth for those participating. So the participants don't have to go through a central authority, a bank or a government or some other keeper of the records to get information. They can all see it at the same time. 
blockchain was created to record the buying and selling of Bitcoin. Oh, that's right. So this was in, in 2008. By 2012, 13, people started to see that blockchain could be used for many other purposes besides the buying and selling of cryptocurrency. And so our team focuses on blockchain for enterprise, blockchain to be used in all sorts of industries, the insurance industry, health records, finance, manufacturing, really, you name it now, blockchain is, is going to be used. The city of Chicago has been looking to create ID cards for each citizen. And that information would go on the blockchain. Uh, we're working with government officials on using blockchain to create a registry of weapons. So to facilitate uh, gun registration. So again, it's, it's a way to allow everybody participating to see what's on the record. And uh, somebody gave me a good analogy uh, last year that, if you think about what we're doing right now, everybody who's watching this gets to see it at the same time. So we're creating a, a live blockchain. If somebody's recording it, now they can go back and try to edit that. But then somebody else can say, well, here's the full uncut version, and we can see where you made an edit. So live reporting on television or on the internet, a webinar, is a form of video blockchain. Everybody can see it, and it can't be altered without somebody saying, wait a minute, you messed with that. <laughs> right, right. So it's, it provides a lot of uses, but the challenges are, first, privacy and security and getting people to participate. Um, we can get in more, if you want to, into some of the current uses of blockchain and why they're having difficulty getting uh, participants in those. That's what I was going to ask because I just did a segment with uh, NBC on um, on influencer privacy, security, you know, as it relates to social media. Mm -hmm. You know that there's been a lot of breach um, in the banking systems and social media and accounts and hacking and things like that. Uh, are you saying that blockchain is uh, still hasn't figured out the secure access of it, or will it make it more secure? Theoretically, it will be more secure because okay. everybody can see it. It's open. Um, and, and those who are true believers in blockchain see a world where we can eliminate corruption mm -hmm. because information cannot be messed with. But one of the challenges is to make sure that the information going into a page or a block is clean and not dirty information or bad data because once it's on there and the, the page is sealed and turned into a block, it's very difficult to go back and change it. And especially as the chain forms, if it 10 blocks into the change, you want to go back and change something in the first block. That's very difficult. So yeah. there are many people who dismiss blockchain as unworkable. My feeling is because it offers the promise of tremendously greater efficiency in the flow of information and cost effectiveness that people will be working on improving it. It'll happen step by step as with any technology. You can look at, at most any major technology in our lives and see that it, it didn't start. The first airplane was not a 747. 
Right. It was it was the Wright brothers little rickety biplane. Um, the first automobile had the engine probably with the power of a modern day lawnmower. Right. So and and our phones, you know, the first flip phone uh, could not do nearly I remember, what our I, current I remember, phones do. I remember my bag phone. I think it was two thousand dollars that I paid for it. Thousand dollars <laughs> collector. Yeah, thousand yes. dollars a month. Um, so so. So, yeah. So, and, and you know what, I like the idea of a being authentic because I used to be in data and data security mm-hmm. and, and doing bank audits. Um, and so what we would do is look for patterns of, uh, you know, breaking a pattern or, or patterns that were, uh, out of whack or out of sequence, mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. that. It seems like this, this is very secure in that way that it's going to keep those medical records from being tampered with and banking records from being tampered with. Do I have that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Again, in theory, but hackers are always trying to stay one step ahead of the security experts and it will take vigilance. And we tell our clients, we, we are not coming in to propose a one size fits all blockchain, a prefabricated blockchain. Blockchain may not even be the appropriate technology for a particular problem that a company or organization has with its flow of information. There may be existing technologies that are a better solution. So we are not out there pushing blockchain as the be-all and end-all. And there, there are tremendous complications. I went a couple of months ago to a demonstration by a blockchain architect for Oracle on a pilot project that they're doing with, I think, six companies. And he went through it step by step. I thought, oh, my, as a, a non-technical person, I'm not going to understand this. To my surprise, I realized I've learned enough about blockchain and technology that I was following. Right. And I saw how complicated it is and all the hurdles that they have to overcome to make this workable. In the question and answer session afterwards, I said to the architect, it seems to me that things are going to get a lot more complicated before they get easy. But again, that's true of, of any technology, right. and it takes time to develop. I point out to people the wireless radio was invented by Marconi in the year 1900. We did not have a commercial radio station in this country until 1920 when KDKA in Pittsburgh went on the air. David Sarnoff, at the age of 24, invented television in 1928. We didn't have a commercial TV station until 1948. Um, you think about how wasn't it far wasn't it come. wasn't it Procter and Gamble that sort of broke that open uh, back? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. It was soap, so, right? I think yeah, soap. Yeah, the soap story. So, but technology is advancing at a much faster pace now, and who knows where we're going to be in five years? I I believe, and many people believe that blockchain will be incorporated into so many areas that we will be using blockchain on a daily basis, but 99.9% of us won't even know it. It it has to be seamless and organic, Um, just like the intuitive nature of um, smartphones. Steve Jobs said, dummies need to be able to use this. We can't make it complicated. We have to make it obvious so people can catch on and use it right away, or they're going to get frustrated and put it aside. Yeah, right. And I'm a tech savvy guy. And sometimes I still feel like a dummy when I'm going through my smartphone. So. <laughs> yes. Well, you're um, way so, ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But um, so for the people that are listening uh, in our audience, a lot of people make transitions and you made a mm-hmm. massive transition from CNN, news uh, reporting 
to blockchain technology. And in that, you have um, you know, a financial advisory and services background mm-hmm. for, that, for that 10-year sprint. Tell us a little bit about the shift or the transition that took place and maybe mm-hmm. some of the people that helped you along the way. I left CNN in 1998 at the age of 40. My son was eight years old. My daughter was 18 months old. I felt I didn't need to prove to myself any further that I could look death in the eye and survive. I figured my kids needed a father more than the world needed another TV correspondent. And I didn't want to miss out on their childhood. So I left CNN. I started my own video production company, which allowed me to take on assignments on my own schedule. I did a lot of coaching of my kids' sports teams over the next 10 years until they retired me and went on to play uh, travel sports. They got tired of the old man yelling at them from the same, sidelines. Same here, same here. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I said, well, even if I'm no longer your coach, I'll still be yelling at you. I just won't be your coach. <laughs> but uh, so um, in, in 2009, a friend invited me to look at uh, his financial company, AXA Advisors, My father had become a stockbroker and commodities trader at the age of 39 in 1964. So I essentially grew up in a stockbrokerage office. I spent a lot of time helping my dad clean up. And I learned some things by osmosis and some things that that he taught me. I always felt that I would be nervous being responsible for other people's money. And that was one reason I didn't go into the field. And it was actually my dad who suggested that I go into television news because I'd gotten the lead part in a school play when I was in the 11th grade and he was afraid I'd caught the acting bug and would be forever calling home from Hollywood looking for money, (laughs) starving actor. So he said a steady paycheck is a good thing. Why don't you combine your interest in performing with your academic strong suit in writing and go into television news? And I was one of those oddball kids who actually watched all the newscasts. I knew all the network anchors and reporters and um, had this yearning to go overseas um, as an adult and see the world. And my dad said, you know, why don't you go see the world on somebody else's nickel? And that turned out to be Ted Turner. But so when I had this invitation to look at the financial firm, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, my, my dad had passed away 16 years earlier. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm following the old man's footsteps after all. And I think he's up there in heaven laughing at me because now I'll know what it's like to deal with a financial clients. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I got my licenses and um, was an advisor for five years. And then I was recruited away by a gentleman I had met from Chicago who had opened an introducing brokerage in Shanghai to connect Chinese investors to the U.S. markets. And I essentially did marketing for him. We did uh, video interviews here in Chicago, which I posted on a Chinese blog site. And we got a lot of good response for that. But then I was recruited away by the new investment banking division of Zach's Investment Research, the second biggest equity research firm in the U.S. after Morningstar. And I did that for a while. And uh, then in the summer of 2017, my friend George Vukatic, who had created a, a financial technology incubator called FinTank, like Shark Tank on TV, yep. said, hey, we've had so big a turnout at our free evening seminars on blockchain. We're going to hold a blockchain summit at Kent Law School in Chicago. 
and we need speakers and moderators. I said, well, George, I moderated discussions on television. I hosted a weekly program in the late 90s covering the major issues before the United Nations on CNN. And he said, great. Well, ultimately, he assigned me to interview the attorney from the Securities and Exchange Commission who headed up their financial technology working group. He flew out from Washington. I interviewed him on stage. We had a tremendous turnout for that session and great feedback. So George asked me to put together a panel for the next conference called the CryptoCon, the Cryptocurrency Conference at Northwestern Law School. I brought together some business reporters to talk about how the news media reported on cryptocurrency and blockchain issues. And from there, George has asked me to do several other events. I've been asked now to speak and recently to moderate a panel discussion at the um, International Blockchain Congress, organized by another gentleman named George, George Chikabani. And so I, I've become in demand. I'm asked to, to moderate lots of panel discussions, to do webinars and so forth. So I really did not know much about cryptocurrency or blockchain when I was invited to get into this. But the more I read, the more I saw the potential of blockchain and how it will transform so many aspects of our lives. Well, and that's one of the things that, um, and that's actually how we met was through George and David Carmen uh, mm -hmm. in Chicago. Uh, mm -hmm. I've known those guys for quite some time. And I think that, um, I think your news background is actually what has given you um, the upper edge because you were an investigative reporter. You had to investigate mm -hmm. and understand mm -hmm. things and learn in a very fast manner. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, I can relate to that because, you know, I churn out a class like every week because, uh, you know, it's like I, I learn about it and I need to teach it so that I, it, it sort of forces me to wire in that, that part that uh, where I can help other people. And so I think that's your benefit because I meet a lot of blockchain people that have a tech background like myself. And, and I, yeah, heck, I was in tech when there was punch cards. Now I'm dating myself, right? <laughs> right. I remember at Merrill Me Lynch, raise a punch cards, you know? And so, mm -hmm. but, but, but that doesn't, um, I, I don't think that qualifies you for a changing technology. I think, mm -hmm. I think you're spot on where you have to be able to research fast, understand, apply it to a solution for a business. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you just seem naturally wired like that. Did you did you know that out of the gate, or was that just something that you stumbled in? I had covered technology issues over the years, and I always felt my job as a news reporter was to learn as much as I could, as quickly as I could, about often complex and even confusing issues, and then distill that into a two-minute television report. Uh, or or less. And so right. the challenge is to explain complex issues and try to cut through the jargon and explain it in a way that the general audience can. There were, back in the 80s, uh, consultants and coaches in the TV news business said, aim for an eighth grade level audience. I didn't believe in that. I wanted to, to lift our audience up. And I felt on CNN, we had a much more educated audience. But I also didn't want to talk over people's heads. And again, that's right. the, the job of the reporters to, to take issues and distill them into tight packages that people can follow. And especially on television or radio, you're, talk, you're, you're reporting to the ear. 
people don't have a chance to go back and reread a previous paragraph as they do with newspaper or magazine or now online. Um, you have to present things in a way that the brain can absorb and follow through the year. So that's what I feel is my strength in this new technology is, and I hope I did it somewhat effectively earlier talking about Ebenezer Scrooge, is giving people those aha moments. Okay, now I get it. Now I, now I understand what you're talking about. Because I find if I have to understand it first before I can explain it to other people. Right. So I experience them, this in, in all facets of my reporting career, whether um, cutting through jargon, whether I was dealing with um, the police and doing a news conference where they talk about perpetrators and they use all sorts of language that they wouldn't use when they go home and tell their spouse, oh, I got the bad guy today. Um, and I couldn't boil it down to those kinds of phrases, but police, lawyers, doctors, engineers, on and on, all these professionals have their own jargon. And they often forget what it was like not to know that jargon. They can't go back in their own minds and say, oh, I need to explain this to civilians or lay people who haven't learned all that I know. And that was my job as a reporter was to take information from experts and boil it down into a two-minute report that people could understand. And so I enjoy moderating discussions now because I get to ask the questions I usually have a conference call with my panelists beforehand so we can go over it so they're not I'm not throwing them curveballs and that there will be a progression in the discussion. So again, the audience taking it through their ear can follow the discussion because I find too often in panel discussions, the moderator will jump around from issue to issue and it's hard for the audience to follow that and you can see people getting bored and tuning out. So I, I try to give people a chance to to understand the basics at the beginning and then go through a progression to get deeper and deeper to drill down into uh, the deeper issues. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, our, our audience is, is uh, most of them have been trained or coached by us or have been exposed to what we call social teaming. You've, uh, you've uh, attended some of our workshops mm -hmm. and whatnot as well. And, and this is, uh, comes from my roots on the street of, of having trusted people around you uh, that that are that you know there's um, uh, there's uh, you know it's it's collaborative. It means that that we're all in this together, and they're there to mm -hmm. help you. So, in your transitions, are there a couple of people you'd like to just maybe give a shout out to that helped you and, and are still helping you maybe transition? You know, as this this fast changing technology has taken place. Yes, I'd like to give a particular shout out to a uh, an attorney named Kate Curler who I met at a business networking lunch in Logan Square in Chicago in, I think it was 2012. And of all the business cards I exchanged with people that day, the one person I, I'm still in contact with, and really probably the only person I followed up with that day, uh, was Kate. And over time, we said, you know, we really need to build up our LinkedIn profile uh, <laughs> connection, or our, our LinkedIn profile and our connections. I think I only had five connections in 2013 on, on LinkedIn. So we got a group together. We had a trust attorney. We had some people in the, uh, the healthcare world. And we actually sat in a conference room and said, who can we contact? How can we start building this? Um, I heartily endorse Social Jack and my friend Dean, because I have learned so much from you about how to 
write an effective profile. And it's it's just like having a strong lead sentence in a news report. You have yeah. to have a, a hook to grab people in. You have to have a middle, and then you have to have a clever closing, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's like telling right. a, a little story or presenting a little movie. That's how I saw TV reporting, and that's what you do with social media, and you teach people how more effectively to reach out to the people they're trying to talk to. So from that uh, group that I worked with in 2013, I went from having five contacts then to more than 3,300 now. Um, but as you point out, it's not necessarily the number of contacts you have, but the quality of contacts that, that really matters. Yeah, that's huge. So that's cool. You know, and, uh, I think, I think, um, what I always admire about you is that you're always willing to learn the next thing and the next step, mm-hmm. you know, technology, uh, sometimes isn't kind to us, you know, and like I said, sometimes I'll sit there and get frustrated with my computer or software, or even a platform you log in and LinkedIn has this one day and they move it over here and they didn't tell anybody and they, you know, <laughs> for our business that makes it tough, you know, but, um, yeah. But I, I I always appreciate that you are willing to constantly learn and constantly uh, connect to people, and you're a great connector too. And that's part of our you know mantra here is to help other people mm-hmm. uh, and be a net giver and make those introductions so that you know things what goes around comes around. And I just want to I just want to say that about you, and I've always thank you you for that. So thank you very much. Cool and there, there were people who helped me. Along the way, it was a gentleman at my station in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who then was probably around the same age I am now, who came to me and said, hey, I have an old friend. We work together in Washington, D.C., but he's from Oklahoma. He's looking to fill a correspondent position at CNN in L.A. And again, I was only 24 at the time. I had been the weekend anchor at our station for only six months, Um, but he had faith in me. And he had given me some good career advice about not jumping to another company until it was really worth it. And um, so I've had people who've helped me along the way, and I'm almost compulsive in wanting to help bright young people. And I, I sometimes will start in helping somebody who really doesn't show much appreciation or doesn't seem to understand or just has an inflated sense of themselves that I will pretty quickly stop um, helping. Um, I usually just let it go. Um, I I won't necessarily lecture them about that because I I don't think it will help. But uh, my wife and I have both mentored many people over the decades in television news and and other areas. And I, I had lunch yesterday with a gentleman I just met a couple of weeks ago. He's in public relations. He started as a journalist, so we had that in common. And as he's telling me about some people in the PR industry, I immediately uh, look them up on LinkedIn. I, I, I violate the rule that you're not supposed to be on your phone while you're talking to people, but I immediately hit connect to a person that he said is the best networker that he knows. And I later got a response from that person, and I immediately sent him a message. So 
I violate the rule that you should not connect to anybody that you don't know, or you should wait for an email introduction. <clears throat> it, it depends on the circumstance, but many times I will just invite somebody to connect and then follow up with the message. Well, when they accept. well that's, and, and that's our rule. It's like, well, if you, if you're going to connect to people, don't just do a stream of unconscious mm-hmm. connecting to grab people, but have the intent to have a conversation with them and yes. practice that to the hilt. That's amazing. I tried to do that, but I, I must admit I have connected with people, especially in the blockchain space, who I think might be useful to me at some point. I just want to have them in my list because I have found that LinkedIn is extremely helpful in searching for people. I cannot yeah. keep track of 3,300 names. Uh, probably can't keep track of 30 names, but by entering somebody's profession or just entering blockchain, I come up with the whole list of my first connections. You can look at second and, and third connections, but um, I, I very often help people. Um, I was out to dinner Saturday night and one of my wife's former colleagues at the Fox station in Chicago says that uh, her daughter, a sophomore to college in Ohio is in data analytics, majoring in data analytics. She was supposed to go on some sort of European study program this summer. It was postponed till next year. She's sort of scrambling for an internship. And I said, oh, I've got friends in data analytics. I moderated a panel discussion in November on data security and made a bunch of friends in Chicago in that area. So I'm happy to connect her. Um, so I need to write that email after we get off here. But um, so I, I'm, I'm very eager to help smart people. I think it's good for the world. And as I said to this gentleman I had lunch with yesterday, I don't think it's wise to keep score on making connections to expect a one-on-one reciprocity. Um, Things will come around, but I I very seldom make a connection thinking that it's going to come back to benefit me in some way. I just do it because I think it's good karma and it's, it's better for all of us to promote smart people. Yeah, goodwill, absolutely. Well, at this point of the segment, as we wrap up, we ask people, what is the um, what is the one takeaway? We always encourage our audience to say, well, you know, you got to meet Brian Jenkins here, and, and what did you get from today's program, uh, and what inspired you? And maybe you can use that to help somebody else, or maybe even help yourself, and we want you to share that with others. So, uh, we're mm-hmm. going to bring Kate back on and see what she got out of the program today. Okay. And um, I want to wish your uh, son Connor's success um, as a contestant coming up on May 13th on the show, The Bachelorette. So that's got to be interesting and exciting. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll be watching like this uh, through my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody tune in May 13th yes. and yes. see what happens. So, and I, I will. I, I, I can't provide any inside info at this point, but I'll, I'll be watching it along with everyone else. <laughs> with, as a nervous parent. So, Kate, what yes, did you get yes. out of this uh, interview with Brian? Well, as somebody that, you know, is, is a, comes from a radio background, I just love his story. And I think a lot of um, people who are also in media will have similar stories like me, for instance, of how they kind of fell into it. And so I love But um, my favorite part about it all was just where you are in your career and where you've been and that you're still so um, eager to help other people. Like you have such a giving heart. I knew that about you from when I first met you and you're one of my favorite people to ever interact with. But it's just so nice because coming from like the younger perspective, you know, it's like not many people out there are willing to help or give advice or mentor without receiving anything in return. And now even 
advanced in my career, I'm getting younger people asking me for advice. <laughs> just, you know, I know when did that happen? I'm, I don't know. <laughs> it's just interesting. You know, it's just, it's just so lovely to hear that there's still people out there that will give advice without expecting anything in return. So, um, I know I'm probably not the only person that's benefited from your advice. So I just want to thank you for that. Yeah, you're cool. more than welcome. And I, I started speaking to student groups within the first year coming out of college because I was a local TV personality. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I would say to people, don't be shy about meeting new people. Don't wait to follow up with them. I will sometimes I'll, I'll meet people and I'll immediately go to LinkedIn and invite them to connect because I know if I wait even an hour, I'll probably I may forget about it. I'll say to myself, well, I'm going to do this while I'm on the train home. And then I get caught up doing other things. So uh, don't put it off. Connect with people. You can always follow up with a message later. You do have to be somewhat discriminating. I get offers from all over the world every day um, from people wanting to connect in regard to cryptocurrency and blockchain. And if I don't know them or they don't have some mutual contact, uh, with me, um, I, I don't accept everybody because I'm concerned about security or people using my identity or my name to promote themselves. So I, I try to be discriminating uh, about that. Um, but it's amazing how quickly your contact network can mushroom, especially in one particular area. But I, my attitude is you can't teach old dogs new tricks. And <laughs> When you stop learning, you might as well just hang it up. Um, I, that's one of the things I loved most about reporting was learning about new issues, new topics, and new technology. I am not the world's smartest technologist, but I love learning about it and, again, trying to explain it to people who are not experts. Right. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. It, it's just always a delight to talk talk with you and and to Thanks. have you on. And everybody's chiming in here that they loved uh, having you and and listening to this. And um, uh, don't forget that uh, those of you that uh, are uh, live with us, uh, don't forget you can grab the recording off of all the major podcast channels. And then we also invite you to join us on the Business Influencer Alliance uh, Facebook group. A lot of you are in there chiming in right now. So uh, we always appreciate uh, extra comments and, and for you to participate. And remember, please, please, whatever you heard from Brian today that inspired you, please make sure that you share that with somebody else and, and keep passing that along because you're all business influencers and um, we just want to help make the world a better place by helping each other out. So Brian, from the bottom of our heart, we appreciate you and I'm sure I'll see you at an event soon in Chicago when I get back. And uh, any Anytime. Anytime. And shout out to the Mizzou Mafia, the ultimate networking group long before social media. Yep. The <laughs> alumni of the University of Missouri School of Journalism. That's why I'm wearing the cap today. Yeah, um, and, and being in St. Louis, they're down here somewhere, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> there are lots of Mizzou alums there. And, you know, we called it the Mizzou Mafia because there's so many journalism graduates out in the business at almost any TV, radio station, newspaper in the country, you could find somebody who was a Mizzou graduate and that gave right. you a little bit of an in um, to, to get an interview at least. There you go. All right, really? my man. All and then right, one last thing, oh. we got a shout out, Edith Bell. 
She is our engagement winner on today's session. So she was asking a lot of questions and chiming in and saying how inspiring you were, Brian. So we're going to reward her with a Starbucks gift card. And our rule is, is that she has to take someone for coffee and teach them what she learned today. So congratulations, Edith. And connect with me on LinkedIn, Edith. There you go. (laughs) Brian Jenkins, blockchain. Yeah, way to go, Brian. All right, everybody. Well, listen, we'll see you on the next episode. And Brian, we'll see you real soon when I get back to Chicago. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you online. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Influence Factory podcast. We welcome feedback and suggestions. You can provide these by visiting our website at www.myinfluencefactory.com. And if you are interested in Social Jack's 90 Days to Influence program, you can simply go to 90daystobusinessinfluence.com and simply ask for the next steps. While our program airs regularly on Zoom webcasts and Facebook Live on Wednesdays at noon central, we invite you to download episodes on your favorite channel, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and who knows where else in the future. We will also provide occasional on-location live streams with special guests that we will announce in our community Facebook group, Business Influencer Alliance, as well as on all Social Jack channels. Our mission is to help you build your digital business influence with this podcast, as well as inspire, educate, and entertain those who are hungry to collaborate in a cool place with cool business professionals just like you.